Welcome back to another episode of The Geek Whispers. I'm Matt Brender. And I'm Amy Lewis. And I'm John Mark Troyer. And we're here to have a, a personal conversation. First one of the year of the three of us together just by ourselves and pontificating and thinking about careers, technology, and the intersection of all those things that we're interested in. And uh, we had to start with a little bit of an anecdote because you may have noticed We've had some trouble getting our recordings out on time and consistently. So we're actually going to dig right into that, not shy away from it at all. We're going to talk about failure today. Failure to do things, failure to overcome adversity, stories from personal and professional failure, and then honestly, some ways in which we've overcome that and great strategies we've picked up from other people. Because we need more of that. We need more of that in our industry and understanding that with change and with adaptation comes failure, comes sucking at things. Am I right, Geek Whispers? I feel like we need a commercial. Failure, it's not just for your data center on the weekends. <laughs> the more you know. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> I thought this was a weekly podcast. <laughs> well, it's funny. I would actually think we're still talking about social media if we listen to our own outro. That hasn't changed since <laughs> year one. Before we just seem like we're digging into ourselves, we really want to explore this. So we wanted to make an episode 101. You may realize that we're past 101 right now, if you're listening, but we wanted a 101 and we were going to go geeks in the wild or Amy, how did you put it? I think you tell a great story about this. Um, An American geek life. Basically, we wanted to be NPR and we found out that NPR is really good at being NPR and they have a lot of smart people who help them and we can't just be NPR because we decided one day. Let me give some color commentary. So we (laughs) have done a couple different themes over the life of the podcast. And uh, we started off by talking about marketing and social media and that kind of intersection about how do you market to geeks. And then we were talking about careers. And so we thought, this is good, but let's be more produced. Like, let's be more professional. Because, like, I don't know if you've heard, but podcasts are hot. And there's this serial thing. And then there's Gimlet Media and all these podcasts and the comedians and people are getting millions of downloads. And here we are still talking into, uh, you know, cheapo mics and uh, doing our Skype thing. We had the brilliant idea, well, let's be more produced. Let's have podcasts. We have an editor. Let's edit. Let's be This American Life. Uh, And like Amy said, it was hard. We tried to start easy. We tried to do the television favorite of a clip show. Yeah. So we all went back through old episodes. We clipped out our favorite parts. We were putting it together, and it just didn't feel right. The recording around it felt forced as we were trying to lead into these things that we knew were going to be cut in. And then it was like having a laugh track. (laughs) Yeah, it did. It felt the same. We're so our own laugh track. (laughs) Well, and we worked for hours with Jan, our editor. She's great. We just didn't love the podcast that was coming out. Yeah, she was great. We failed. (laughs) 100%. Yeah. So fast forwarding to where we are today. We are at a point where we know we're happy with the audience. We're hitting home. People are changing their jobs based on things that we pontificate about based on the stories that we tell here. And that's amazing and very meaningful to all three of us. But what was difficult for us was feeling like we were getting the week-to-week value out of it and the system in place that we wanted. John, why don't you tell people a little bit more about how we got past that? Well, let's wallow in despair for a couple seconds more. I mean, (laughs) what happened was we just stopped recording. We got stuck on this one episode. We kept re-editing it. We didn't schedule any guests. Things intervened too, right? The holidays intervened. Work greatly increased for all three of us. And, you know, a lot of things like that. I got acquired. I'm just saying. (laughs) 
Yeah, and Matt's in the middle of this move. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm moving cross country for my work, and John's tripling the amount of work he's taking on. So yeah, we we got a little busy. And at the same time, I'm joking a little bit because when we get together, we talk about these things. But the truth is, the three of us have always had busy, crazy lives, and everybody listening to us has a busy, crazy life. And anytime you tell it just starkly without detail, it's a wonder any of us get up and can get anything done without injecting coffee into our veins, right? But we hid from it. I'm going to call us out. We did the number one thing you don't do because we kept kind of working at it. But then we're like, oh, I'm busy. I'll put it off. Total elephant in the room. Totally. Well, so first thing we had to do is say, okay, we reconnected with each other and we had a conversation and we said, hey, one, I think we've screwed up. We obviously have stopped recording. And I think that that's kind of a failure on all of our parts for many reasons. And we had kind of a frank discussion around that. As you intimated, Matt, do we want to continue this? Are we still having fun? Are we still making value? And what did we do wrong? And how can we fix the things that caused that to go wrong? All three of us agreed, and thus the theme of this podcast, we kind of screwed up. Yeah, and that's also the beauty of it, that we didn't want to slink away. And even though we've recorded since that moment, we've decided to review it. We didn't want to leave it behind the scenes because nothing is more touching to careers these days than an understanding that you are guaranteed to fail and you're guaranteed to need to get up after if you're going to continue on. So we're talking about it now and we want to continue to talk about it. So let's bring up some stories from the trenches, guys. Can we call this episode 101.5 or Redux? Do we get another go? It's mathematically bothersome. (laughs) 101 Reloaded (laughs) Matrix. Part two. For the French. So tell me this, John, Amy, what are some moments where you've been talking to somebody, we get the opportunity to talk to people about their careers all the time, or just personally have thought of just a moment of failure, just where you didn't think you're going to get by it and you overcame it? I'm raising two pre-teenage daughters, so I fail on a daily basis. (laughs) 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 And and I have two people let me know. (laughs) Two very smart people, I can say from experience. Oh my gosh, yeah. I'm not feeding them any more vegetables, only snack chips and and soda for them. I got to dumb them up a little bit. But in all seriousness, if there has been one thing that has taught me about the importance of failing publicly, you hear a lot about helicopter parenting now and the challenges of kids going to college and not knowing how to do anything, right? Really not having the life experience, the hard knocks, because we've inoculated ourselves and our culture against failure. And it was one of those sobering moments. A lot of things that I do in my personal parenting life, I bring to my team and realize that I have to admit failure publicly if I expect anybody to be able to approach me as, as a human and as somebody that they can connect and relate with. Because truthfully, we all fail. Now, why is that? Because I think that we are in this polished world. And again, we're all guilty. And people say this all the time. Amy, you must have this great life. You travel everywhere. I see on social media, you always look upbeat. And I had a great conversation with a colleague of mine just last week. We're walking into a sales kickoff together. It's early. And he's like, you are so way more chipper than me. And I looked at him and I smiled because you guys know I'm not the greatest morning person. I was like, it's my job. And he stopped and he goes, wow, it kind of is, isn't it? (laughs) And I realized that it's important to show people behind the mask. That's so true for my kids 
Because if they think I'm perfect, even though we all know that's not true, think about it from the perspective of a kid. If you never show any weakness, then you never show how to recover. And if you never show somebody how to fail with dignity, how are they supposed to learn? So if we're complaining about this next generation and the millennials get a black eye for it, if we're not modeling more appropriate ways to fail and being more candid and everything's this glossed social media package, we're doing a disservice. Wow. Do you address that directly with your kids, Amy? Do you talk about being smart versus trying hard versus actually achieving what you set out to do? You know, we talk about it all the time. There's some very cool stuff in the education world about this concept of try, the importance of try. Both my girls play a couple sports. Each of them has a favorite, but each of them plays their sister's sport as well, which is their second favorite. And part of that is be really good at one thing, but go try on something else. It keeps you fit year round and it's okay not to be the best at everything and even to struggle a little bit. I'm really proud of them for that because it teaches that lesson too. And when I fail, I am learning how to say it honestly and directly to them. And it doesn't make me lower in their eyes. It has every single time been a teachable moment of, I forgot to do something. I'm sorry. Here's how I messed it up. And here's how I'm going to make it right. And the same thing with my team. I have found every single time that I just honestly say, you know what? I'm not good at this. I need to learn this from you. You have this strength and I have this weakness. It's a way of acknowledging that we are human. It is more relatable to be imperfect than perfect. And it is just that much more honest. It's just part of living an authentic life. And I can't say I always do it gracefully or well. I've certainly stumbled, not gracefully, but you know what? Dust yourself off and you keep going. I'm very happy that my girls go to a school where they actually do reward. They say effort equals ability. And that just is repeated over and over and over again. So this idea that you're the smart kid and you can be lazy is not supported at school or certainly not in this house. Hmm. That's amazing. There's so much to learn just from <laughs> just from trying to understand that from, from a child's point of view or an adult's point of view. Yeah, boy, I can relate. I, I guess I'll share this story. It is a work story, I suppose. It is also a, a life story. As many folks know, I was involved with a startup back in 99 through 2002, three. And I think that's probably my biggest failure. And it really tripped me up. I was always the smart kid, Amy. This was pre figuring out the effort equals ability phase of education, right? So when I grew up, I was a smart kid. I didn't try at all. I aced everything throughout grammar school and, you know, even high school. I did all my homework at the very last minute. I just barely put out the effort required. And I got into a good college and I figured out that I could also squeak by. I didn't have to get A's, but I could still squeak by with a lot of beer drinking and a lot of sleeping in. And I got into the extracurricular activities and and the radio station and all that sort of stuff. I didn't try that hard because my self-conception was still based on being the smart guy. And it didn't serve me well. So then, uh, you know, I had a couple of jobs and they were going okay. And I started this company and the company flamed out spectacularly, or rather it didn't flame out. It fizzled out, right? As most startup companies do, it would have been fun if it had flamed out in a spectacular crash, but it just wasn't working. 
I was a CEO. We ended up raising $25 million, I think, over three or four rounds from venture capitalists. It was uh, in downtown San Francisco. Uh, as I've said wow. publicly, we had very nice chairs. It was a dot-com. It wasn't like a crazy dot-com. Back then, you had the dot-com with way too much money, and they were throwing crazy parties and doing all sorts of nutty stuff. We were conservative from that perspective, but we had 100 employees before we had any revenue. Well, we had some revenue, but we didn't really have that much revenue. And we were trying to do mobile before the iPhone. So the timing was not right. Uh, no company from that era in that field actually survived. So I'll give myself some, you know, some credit. It wasn't necessarily a personal failure, but we, we weren't very good at running the company either, right? We were all first-time company people. Um, we were a bunch of grad students and uh, academics and things like that. And we hired a CEO, and it wasn't the right CEO, and it just the whole thing ended poorly. Ended in vitriol and bitterness and me at home on the couch watching Stargate and uh, <laughs> watching a lot of Stargate reruns and um, Farscape reruns. <laughs> in fact, in fact, they'd be back-to-back. So uh, I think in, oh, in cable, however they were, I'd watch Farscape, 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 Stargate, Stargate, Stargate. Oh, my God, John. <laughs> I, like, I want to go have an intervention with Pat John. <laughs> Well, so did my wife. Uh, my <laughs> wife was not happy either. But this was the first time that I had really experienced like a profound failure. Wow. Not only was many of us, our, our identity is caught up in our jobs, right? But this was my company even, right? I was an entrepreneur. It was just miserable. It stopped me in my tracks, right? I was not resilient. I was the smart guy that had failed. And, uh, you know, I had tried as hard as I possibly could and it had not worked. So as they write the biography of John Troyer in the past, we'll just kind of elide over those three years of misery, right? But I was really miserable for three years. And I did stuff. I tried some other startups. I did some projects with people. But I was really kind of depressed. We'll shorten that up when we write the biography. Make it sound like it was a short amount of time. <laughs> I really feel not well served by this treatment growing up of, of calling me the smart one. Now, I did eventually get back up on my feet. And in fact, I found this job at VMware. And they were like, why is this entrepreneur joining VMware as community manager? And I had a good story for it, but in reality, I needed a job. <laughs> you know, I, I needed my wife not to divorce me, and I needed to have a job. That's so interesting, like, how those things went together. <laughs> well, and I feel like I should rat us out even further, because we have admitted this privately amongst ourselves. And you'll have to go back and trace the, um, the timeline more carefully than we'll ever reveal. But when any one of the three of us was having a rough patch with our professional life, we had some of our juiciest podcasts because anger and fire and adversity really fuel creativity. Maybe a very Zen-like way to look at failure, right? Failure's hard, but pulling yourself back up from it can reap unbelievable benefits. And I mean, the, the Silicon Valley way is fail fast and keep going. Now, but they don't really tell you that failing is not fun at all. And I mean, <laughs> no, I got up on my feet, no. I got going again, but you know, failing is not good. You know, you learn stuff, but I'd much rather not fail, frankly. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I'm in a similar boat to you, John, like told I was a smart kid. I went to a tiny school. I was one of 20 students. So just statistically, I had a good chance of being the smart kid, but I just didn't try at all. And failing took the wind out of my sails. I felt I like I gotten past a lot of that and I continue to be humbled by the fact I haven't. Actually, just recently, I was speaking on stage at a developer event in San Francisco and my demo blew up and it didn't work. And there's just like a classic place 
on stage for demos that don't participate with a presentation, especially live ones. And I glossed over it. I made a joke about the demo gods. Like I know my vernacular. I know how to be a nerd and be like, oh yeah, you know, this happens. And I cruised over it, but I went home and I felt like, why the hell did they hire me? Like, why am I doing this? I suck at this. And I still have to fight those demons, those kind of thoughts that sneak up on you. That's the worst feeling. I know exactly what you're saying, Matt. It is. In that moment, it's like I have to smile my way through this, but my confidence just took a punch in the nose. Yeah. And actually, people as sincere as the three of us are, like, that's painful to like the fake it till you make it thing just doesn't feel right at times. Like my heart's on my sleeve and I'm just like, shit, I just ruined everything. Yeah, yeah. I am not right for this job. Why I'm not qualified at all. Yeah. Secretly, I know, secretly, listeners, we're all drama queens who uh, we do heart hearts and minds jobs. And so our hearts and minds go into it for sure. Oh, I hope I'm not a drama queen by any means, but I'm certainly like emotional. Oh, I just called you one. Just kidding. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You called all of us one. I did. Yeah. No, I, I think we all are very emotional people that are forthright. And that's why people can feel the energy around us. But also what they don't see a lot of is when we're low on energy, like we suck the light out of the room. We are darkness. It's sad. Like black holes, right? Yeah. yeah. Community manager down. Community manager down. (laughs) It's so crucial, though, that we put these things in our heads and whatever motivation we have to overcome them and become resilient and, you know, even anti-fragile, to use the term, that the more we're broken, actually, the stronger we get because we realize we can get over it. We have in the past and we will again. So let's cheer up and transition to the positive. And I just want to share one piece of advice I got years ago, and I have said it so many times, and it was one of those kind of moments where you're getting beaten into the gang, and exactly like you said, you feel so fragile. The advice was simple. My good friend, I won't out him on this podcast, but he's been on here, turned to me and just said, don't flinch. I've thought a lot about that. So I just kind of wanted to share that because I completely know that feeling, and I've had that feeling even in the last few weeks, and just having that don't flinch moment. What does that look like to not flinch in those moments? What does that mean to you? It's exactly what you said. I don't think any of us are particularly good at faking it till we make it, even though the advice is out there. Sometimes we have to smile when we feel tired, for sure. Like anybody. I mean, our jobs a little, our jobs collectively are a little different, maybe. And that's probably why we get along so well and, and podcast together. But in any situation where it's just not quite right to fall apart in that moment, be it parenting, because you've got to be the strong one, or the data center is erupting around you or you're on stage trying to demo and you just have to make the crowd comfortable, even though you want to sink into a hole. Those are the moments to just, it's a simple thing to remember in a moment of don't flinch, just kind of keep going, keep going one step in front of the other. Everybody's been where you are. Keep going. Don't flinch. I love it. Hey, I have a question. All of us have seen the situation where somebody's in a role and it's not working out whether it's cultural, skill set, temperament, whatever, right? We all know that it's not working. And we've seen people where it's not working. In some cases, uh, ourselves, right? We've been in roles where it's not working. (laughs) How do you do the calculus? Or how would you advise people to do the calculus of stay versus go versus reevaluate versus double down and try harder until you find a new place versus just don't come in tomorrow? How do you do that calculus? It's a great question. And my immediate answer, if I can tell an incredibly personal story, is 
I'm divorced. I don't think you get a more public failure than that, right? It's not cool or hip or fun to have that failure. And it's inevitably public. And you have to do that exact calculation of at what point is this so significantly wrong that I have to make a different choice. And for me personally, again, taking that sort of analysis, failing so publicly, I think helped me make different career choices, which may sound funny, but it helped change my calculus of thinking that leaving a situation, changing a situation was the ultimate failure, as opposed to staying where you weren't doing anybody any good, that actually might be the bigger failure. To really understand that staying in a situation, hiding your head in the sand, continuing to do what you've always done may actually be the bigger failure. Whereas going out, trying something new, putting your talents in the right context, et cetera, actually is a success. So again, very personal story, but that fear of failure that freezes us, you have to really evaluate it. Please, a divorce is not fun. I'm not telling everybody to go in your relationships here, but you know, you have one life in your career, in your relationships and everything. Is it truly worse to fail publicly than it is to admit defeat and then try something new with a possibility of unending upside? Well, actually, I really want to carry on with the conversation about it being a relationship because as I think about career moves in particular, I see it as a relationship. Well, there's at least one, if not 16 going on, but the one that's coming to mind, it's it's your relationship with your role. Oh, good. Yeah. So I've spoken to people that their relationship with their role is unhealthy, not because the role isn't a great fit. <laughs> They're seeing it do things that they didn't want. If you really think of it like like a relationship, you're like, well, I really didn't expect you to ever put me in this position role. And they're talking to it like a, a terrible boyfriend or girlfriend. The resentment is there. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it, it feels real. It feels like the role has totally screwed you over in this way that you never thought it could because you trusted and loved it. <laughs> but it's made up. Like sometimes it's made up. Sometimes it's totally real and you need to get out of there because your relationship with that role is terrible, without a doubt. And we have plenty of stories of that. We've talked to many people very publicly about that. What I don't think I've highlighted enough personally is that there are times where I made it up. I thought the role was unhealthy for me when really I just wasn't seeing the opportunity to change the role because the role and the interaction I had with it was more malleable than I realized. That's why I'm such a big fan of talking about this optionality idea and this recognition that job titles are pretty squishy. And if you start doing the work you love, you might just be really good at it and get promoted for it. So I also want to keep that in mind. Well, I think we may be career therapy. This might be couples counseling. You know, tell us what's going on between you and your role. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, I literally just made that up. And, but like, that's what it feels like so often is like, we're just having this conversation with this inanimate object or concept even, and we're saying it does things. And sometimes it really does. And a lot of times we're just making it up because we think it's doing something. You know, we talked about when quitting do, but here you're talking, I guess, about not giving up and about in, in maybe in another term, uh, resiliency. 
I love the term resiliency. I love the idea of resiliency. I think it's a term that's really only entered pop culture consciousness in the last couple decades, maybe. But I'm in Silicon Valley, right? And I'm kind of steeped in the lore of entrepreneurs. And in every entrepreneur story, there is a story of resiliency. In fact, I was just reading today about Elon Musk. And when he was trying to pull off the very first version of PayPal, right as they were about to get some round of funding, I think a very early round, and perhaps their first, all the staff walked out on Elon Musk. And I don't know why. I don't know the backstory. But basically, everybody quit. And they were, he was just about to get a check from a venture capitalist. And that venture capitalist pulled out. So he could have stopped right there, right? But he happens to be extremely resilient and possibly a little bit of a sociopath. But that's a different podcast. So point being, every entrepreneur story, the Edison story about the light bulbs, even the people we interviewed, often the story was pretty positive and pro-passion. But behind every one of those stories, sometimes it was off the air, sometimes it was on the air. There was this idea of resiliency of like not giving up. I don't know. Have you guys caught that from our whole genre theme series of podcasts here? 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Amy was even kind of paying homage to that of like not giving up on this idea that you could be better by being somewhere else. And I think there are multiple types of resiliency is my point like that. There's the resiliency to stay and there's the resiliency to stay with an idea and pursue it no matter where it brings you. So I respect the concept and think it's absolutely crucial in order to do anything worthwhile. But I also don't feel like it's a very good yardstick. It doesn't point you in a direction. It's just just because you have the passion doesn't mean you don't you have a direction. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. But I mean, not giving like keeping the motor running, keep pedaling. I think of it like a bike. Like if you don't keep pedaling, you're going to fall over. So sure, you still have to steer. But above all, don't stop pedaling. Yeah. I think a hundred percent that's true. And and I know again, to be a little not a generationalist, but I have seen a lot of conversation around that where people say, Oh, the millennials, they give up too easily. There's not that whatever stick to itiveness. But I think in all of us that there is that desire to cut and run sometimes and just stop. That's the perfect analogy, John, of A bike can course correct. You can steer differently, but you will fall over if you stop. Or running a race. I'm a terrible runner, but eventually it has to end. And sometimes that's my only happy thought is I will just eventually have to cross that finish line. And sometimes it is just a matter of one foot in front of the other. And I think so often when we fail, there is just this urge to stop right there and melt into the ground, you know, preferably. But It doesn't move you forward. It doesn't make the failure less public, less painful, less anything. It doesn't help. It's not a winning strategy. Excellently said, Amy. You're so right. And in a very Amy way, I think we should uh, get to the question that we have learned that should always end this podcast. What would we never do again? We've been well, very honest, but reasonably positive, nevertheless, in this conversation. So Amy, what's one thing when facing failure, when facing challenge that you would never do again? Definitely hide from it. I'm going to use a Harry Potter analogy here. Just coming back from Harry Potter world. In the books, there's this concept of a howler, which is a note often gotten from a parent sent to you at school when you do something wrong. And the idea is if you open it right away, it's going to be loud. You're going to take your licks, but it will... A howler. You can guess it's loudly 
proclaim to everyone who can hear it. But the idea is if, it, if you try to hide it, stuff it in your book bag, ignore it, it just gets worse. And that is the best advice. And it's advice I have to tell myself over and over and over again. But not dealing with something, particularly not dealing and facing with a failure and owning it and handling it responsibly, like a howler, it just gets up and sets your book bag on fire. So best to deal with it. Well said. John, how about you? What would you not do? Well, I, I think uh, we're going to have a, some sort of a theme here because I, I would never also isolate myself after a failure. When my company went down, I did see other people. I collaborated with people. I tried to get a few different startups off the ground. But for the large part, I did do too much isolating on the couch, watching you know Stargate and Farscape. And uh, I didn't, for instance, go back to the industry conferences that I had been speaking at as part of this startup. And I didn't like throw myself back into the industry conversation in a way I, I kind of hid. I tried to start over again from scratch and um, that wasn't good. I would never do that again. Yeah. So never isolate yourself, keep yourself in the conversation, look your peers straight in the eye. Yeah. And, you know, challenging myself to the same question, I, what I hope to never do again, but uh, no promises that'll get there right away is think that failure is a sign that you're not meant to do something. Ooh, that's good. That's existential. I love that. That's really good. Yeah. Whether you're meant to do something or you're meant never to do it again, you're guaranteed to be failing or nearly guaranteed to be failing at it. And I found that there are a lot of things that I truly enjoy doing and I'm happy I continue to do, including, by the way, record a podcast and speak on stage that I by all definitions of the term, failed at at first. And I found that only with overcoming that failure and continuing through it that I found that, in fact, there is success there. And there's always been room for it. It's just a matter of tenacity, persistence, resilience, whatever term we want to throw out there, but just not giving up when it comes down to it. Nice. Very nice. I like it. Yeah. Related to that last point is that famous Ira Glass quote. Maybe we can link to it in the show notes. It's an article about failing and having being bad at what you do. Are you guys familiar with that? I'm not familiar with that. No, and I love Ira Glass. Well, if we link to NPR, does that make us NPR and bring us full circle? <laughs> well, his point is, if you want to do something, you're going to be bad at it at first because you have good taste, but your ability does not match your taste yet. And that's very much echoing what Matt was saying, right? He knows what a good speech is. He knows what a good podcast is, but we don't always execute on that. And eventually, you know, your execution catches up to your taste. But yeah, I'll link to it. It's actually a really good essay. Oh, damn. That is perfect. The story we tell in our house, because of course we're in North Carolina, it's basketball country. The eldest is a very tall basketball player, is uh, Michael Jordan got cut from his JV team. <laughs> nice. It's a pretty great story. And with that, I think we have a lot of great stories to tell about your career and what you're up to in this community. So don't be shy about reaching out to us on Twitter, Facebook, or any other medium you like. Be sure to give us a like, follow us, and or subscribe. Tell a friend too, and we will keep it up. So with that, thank you for another wonderful week of the Geek Whispers. Over and out. 
You've been listening to the Geek Whisperers podcast. Tune in on iTunes or Stitcher for regular stories of technology careers, cultures, and lives. Share it with a friend or invite us to an event through our website, geek-whispers.com. Find us on Twitter at geek underscore whispers or at Troyer, MJ Brender, and Comms Ninja. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Or is that too cheesy? No. No. Nope. We're like Oprah. Yeah. We are. We're, We're like, like kale, Oprah. apparently. <laughs> McDonald's kale salad has uh, more <laughs> fat calories than a Big Mac. Oh, my God. McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the dressing. They, add a oh, they give you like a gallon. Food. It's like, welcome to McDonald's. We'll cover up your vegetables however you'd like us to.